welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. My name is Elaine Kosrova, and my book is called Butter, a Rich History. Butter is mankind's invention. It wouldn't exist without our desire for it. I love when authors take deep dives into a single subject. How did the book Butter come about? Well, it was really the science of butter that intrigued me before the history because I started to see on the market a lot more selection, certainly than when I grew up. You know, there's cultured butters and whey butters and goat butters and sheep butters and high-fat butters. You know, there's really quite a selection out there. And I was intrigued knowing that butter is essentially one ingredient, right? It's cream. Sometimes it's, people use whole milk, but it, generally it's cream. And yet there were, you know, all these nuances, and not just the type, but, you know, the colors of butters change, the texture changes. So, you know, that was really what started me on this butter journey. And almost naturally, the science just led to the history. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, there really is a book here. There's, this is worthy of a book. And I was honestly very surprised there wasn't one out there already. I know. I kind yeah. of was, too. <laughs> Speaking of yeah. colors, what kinds of colors have you seen in butter? I just think of butter as that pretty light yellow. Yeah, I think that's pretty standard, and that's certainly the color of most supermarket butters. But I think with the, the artisanal movement, we're seeing, um, and, and and the return to more grass-fed dairying, we're seeing butters that can be a deep golden yellow. I mean, almost as rich as a daffodil color. Um, but also... There are butters from other animals that are naturally white, like a goat butter and sheep butter, water buffalo butter. I've had all these different kinds, and they're naturally white. And it's not a reflection of the fact that the, of what the cows are eating, because they're, if they're eating grass, you know, these three kinds of animals, if they're eating grass, they still will not make a bright yellow butter because their body chemistry turns the beta carotene to vitamin A, which is colorless. So a lot of people would might look at a white butter and think, oh, it's it's not from grass-fed animals, which is only true if, if it's a cow butter or yak butter. That's so interesting. Yeah. So historically, yeah, how far back does butter go? Well, we'll never know precisely because it was well before recorded history, at least 9,000 years ago when people were domesticating animals. But if you look at the Tibetan Plateau area, they were domesticating yaks probably 15,000 years ago. So it could easily be that old. We, you know, we just don't know precisely when they started um, processing the milk. Certainly they were milking the animals, but at what point were they processing it and making butter and cheese? But still, it's a very ancient product. You know that for sure. Just last summer, a man in Ireland was chopping peat, and he came across a 22 22- pound chunk of buried butter. Describe bog butter. The practice of burying butter in the bog is a very ancient practice. You know, more than a thousand years ago, that people that lived in Ireland were doing this. And partly we can assume it was to preserve the butter because peat is very acidic and it's anaerobic. It's a really good medium for preserving things. But what's interesting now, they found at least 400 of these bog butters buried in the peat. And uh, archaeologists have mapped out, you know, where they're found, and they see a pattern. 
that leads them to believe that these bog butters were actually a pagan offering to the elementals, to the fairies. You know, the ancient Irish were very superstitious about many things, including, um, you know, their butter luck and their just their luck in general. So to offer gifts to, you know, to the elementals uh, was definitely part of their practice. So finding these bog butters doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that they were necessarily forgotten, you know, left behind. I mean, that might have happened if there was some kind of battle uh, and, and, you know, people died. But in general, we think now that they were pagan offerings. Have you ever tasted bog butter? Uh, no, but I do have a buttermaker friend who's in England. He's actually a Swedish guy, one of the most interesting buttermakers I met in all of my research. He's a Swedish guy who's moved to England, and he loves experimenting with the whole dairy realm, particularly butter and butter fat. And he made uh, a butter and has it buried in the bog now. I think it's probably been there about four years, and he's going to take it out after seven years. And he promised to let me know when, so maybe I could be there. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the range of flavors of butter? They can range, honestly, from a mild, almost bland butter, with, with you know, it has it has that fatty texture but not a lot of flavor, to ones that are deeply buttery, um, ones that have a little bit more herbal notes going on, and and other cultured butters that range from mildly acidic to ones that are almost cheesy tasting. You know, if, you, if you've got a good palate, you certainly would see that range. And it's not much different than comparing a bunch of Pinot Noirs. You know, there can be quite a lot of varieties. So if, if you had a flight of butters, as they say, a flight of wine, you know, a flight of butters, you'd, you'd taste quite a lot of variation these days in particular. Again, it, you know, a generation ago, it wasn't true. We just didn't have access to different kinds. And that's why, you know, this topic intrigued me so much because the butter market is, is so much more interesting now. Now, with the different range of flavors, is there different consistency with the flavor? Well, texture is kind of a whole other realm. You know, it's a, it's a whole other thing in butter making. You know, with the industrial butters that we get, the supermarket butters, I should say, it, doesn't, it sounds, <laughs> sounds better. But, you know, they're made on a massive scale. And in their production, they take the cream and they put it through this fine calibration of temperature adjustment, just like warm, cold, warm, or cold, warm, cold. It depends on the season. And the goal of that is to get the perfect ratio of solid and liquid fats in the cream which translates to a super smooth butter when you churn it. That's, that's something that, you know, the commercial guys have, have really perfected. It's hard to do at home. I'd say it's impossible to do at home. You just have to trust to luck that, you know, maybe you have a good ratio of liquid and, and, and solid fats. And those, you know, that ratio changes throughout the season. In the summer, you have more liquid fats in your cream. In the winter, you have harder fats in the cream. And, more liquid fats means a slightly greasier butter, whereas uh, harder fats can make your butter a little more brittle. So this is why the you know the commercial guys have perfected this this what they call um, physical ripening of the of the cream. And I was fascinated to to learn about that because um, uh, I wasn't aware of it till I really started to dig into the research. So I and now that we have higher fat butters, you know, ones that have not just the standard 80% fat, they have 82, 84, even 86%, you get a much different texture because you have that much less water in the butter and more fat. 
which is also why those can be more expensive, those butters. It stands to reason that if you're not paying for water, you know, you're paying for more good butter fat, they're going to be a bit more expensive. For the last 400 years, Tibetan monks have created large, intricate butter sculptures. Tell us about the fascinating art of butter sculpting. This goes back to at least 600 uh, CE, you know, common era. And it's a, uh, you know, I was amazed, first of all, to discover that many ancient cultures, you know, the Sumerians, the Druids, others, many others, had these sacred rituals that involved using butter. You know, butter was this medium for a lot of their um, worship, you know, the tools that they, one of the tools they use. But the but Tibetan butter sculpting is is the one that really remains. You know, it has it has continued. It's even become even more intricate and beautiful. And essentially, what what happens is before any prayer festival, Tibetan monks, those who are called to do this kind of work, you know, the artistic ones, and the ones who want to do it, um, months before the prayer festival, they will design these elaborate sculptures, and and they're they're colored with pigmented paint. They used to be colored naturally, but usually now they use paint. Um, and they are, they vary depending on the deity who will be honored or the intention of the prayer festival. So there's just hundreds of possibilities as far as design. It's not just one particular thing. And so year to year, you know, the, the sculptures become more elaborate, more intricate, more colorful. They're really, there's a film called uh, Torma, which is you know the name of these sculptures. They're called Tormas, and you can get you can see it online the work that they do and how um, painstaking it is and how beautiful it is. I noticed that they have to keep butter at a certain temperature, so lots of times their fingers freeze. Yes, that was particularly true. In um, and I believe it is still true in Tibet, where they have to work in very cold rooms and dip their hands in cold water to keep the butter from melting and to be able to, you know, craft this elaborate, detailed sculpture. But what's happened, uh, as many of the Tibetan monks are in exile in India, that they have had to replace a lot of the butter with, you know, gradually with margarine and sometimes some wax because the heat in India is so extreme. You know, there, many of them are in southern India, so they just can't work with butter the same way they did in Tibet, where they could maintain these cool temperatures. You know, it's not a question of these things lasting for eternity or even a year, because the Buddhists actually want them to melt away. That's part of their, it, it's part of their philosophy that, you know, life is transient, and so we don't create these to last. They're meant to, you know, to disappear eventually. There's something romantic and uber feminine about the idea of a dairy maid, but their job was so tough and labor intensive. How <clears throat> did they get to be so romanticized? Good, good question, because really they were such laborers, you know, between milking in the fields and carrying the milk from the fields, you know, to the dairy. And they had to process this milk every day because, of course, there was no refrigeration. Um, but I think it's partly because the dairy itself represented a very feminine domain. You know, essentially it was taboo for men to have anything to do with milking, butter making, cheese making up until the 1800s. So for, you know, 
a thousand years <clears throat> or more, definitely more because <laughs> we've been making butter longer than that. But women were in charge of all of that. They had a monopoly on it. So the dairy itself was this very feminine domain. And it also was so closely connected to fertility and lactation and birthing, you know, that there's something very, you know, somewhat erotic about, about that. And this combination, like the dairy had to be this pure, clean place. And yet, you know, it was so much about birth and fertility. Um, so I think, you know, the innuendo there is, is, is kind of sensual. Just yesterday, I saw a commercial for I Can't Believe It's Not Butter, and the tagline was, I can't believe it's made with real simple ingredients. What, oh are, the, what are the ingredients in margarine, and when was <clears throat> its heyday, the 70s? So it's interesting to note the very first margarine that was invented in the 1880s, it was uh, created by a French chemist. And it was made with beef fat and milk and little food coloring and salt. And it was actually quite a hit back then because there was, in fact, a lot of bad butter on the market, a lot of rancid butter, dirty butter, you know, poorly made butter. And that was essentially what the poor were given. You know, if you lived in an urban center and you were poor, you certainly didn't have great butter. If you were poor and lived on a farm, you had great butter because you made it yourself. Um, but margarine represented, you know, a, a much better product for people, you know, with very little income. They could they could afford it more, and it kept longer. So it was a, you know, it was a big hit. It was certainly, uh, you know, that's kind of when its heyday started. And in into the 1900s, you see butter consumption dropping throughout the century. You know, in the beginning of the 1900s, we ate about 17 pounds of butter per person per year. By the end of the 1900s, it was down to about four and a half pounds of butter per person per year. Huh. And, you know, part of that was the whole anti-fat campaign that happened in, you know, in the late 70s through the 80s, even the 60s to some degree. But so, but part of it was that butter was, had gained a lot of pa popularity, you know, it was less expensive. Again, you keep it out. It didn't spoil. Um, so it was a real challenge for butter makers. Yeah. I mean, my book documents like this long legal battle, that 90 year long battle that was created around, you know, the margarine butter wars. But to answer your question about what it's made of um, these days, it's made of different vegetable oils. And it depends on the consistency of the margarine. If they want it to be a tub tub style, which is softer, you know, versus stick margarine, they'll use different kinds of vegetable oils. There is a process of um, hydrogenating the oils, which is what turns the oil from a liquid into a solid. And, of course, we know that that uh, caused the formation of trans fats, which now have apparently been eliminated from that process. They still hydrogenate the oil to make it firm, but what they say now, I mean, I have to believe that there's no trans fats in them because, you know, that, that was required by the government essentially to get rid of the trans fats in margarine. But, you know, certainly for uh, more than 50 years, we were eating margarine. If you were eating margarine, I wasn't. But if you were eating margarine, you had plenty of trans fats in your diet. 
You quote Anthony Bourdain from Kitchen Confidential. He wrote, Believe me, there's a big crock of softened butter on almost every cook station. In a professional kitchen, it's almost always the first and last thing in the pan. My mom mm-hmm. used to always leave <clears throat> the butter out on the counter. Should we refrigerate our butter or leave it out? Depends on how quickly you go through it. I, I have a butter keeper. If anybody doesn't know what that is, it's a little ceramic holder. It's designed to keep your butter at room temperature. So you put your butter into the butter keeper cup, ceramic cup, and then you turn it upside down into another ceramic cup that has a little bit of water on the bottom. And that water creates a seal so the butter doesn't ferment so quickly. And it's fermentation and development of bacteria is what will cause the butter to become rancid eventually. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not bad for you. You know, there are people in the Himalayas that eat rancid butter all the time. They've acquired a taste for it. But our palates don't like the sourness, you know, that off taste of, of rancid butter. So, you know, again, there's no harm in keeping your butter out. And if you go through it, if you go through a stick in a week, then I would certainly keep it out. But if you only use butter now and then, you know, infrequently, then, yeah, I would keep it in the refrigerator. In the back of the book, there's a collection of recipes or butter's greatest hits. I made my family your recipe for bechamel and drizzled it over asparagus last weekend. Is it me Mm -hmm. or are the French mother sauces typically bland? So, but they are, the mother sauces definitely are, um, yeah, they're more in the, in the, I wouldn't say, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're like a clean canvas in a way, you know, for a cook. You can do a lot with them, and that's the whole point of the hundreds of derivations that come from those mother sauces. That was the idea. Let's create this, you know, basic <clears throat> bechamel or beurblanc or hollandaise, and, you know, we can riff on that. So that really is, you know, the whole of you know, French cooking primarily. Is, you know, I mean, the best part of French cooking is these great sauce inventions. Mm-hmm. So for everyday use, what's your favorite butter? I personally buy grass-fed whenever I can. It's, it's better for the animals. It's more nutritious. So that's typically, you know, my go-to butter is there's a couple that I can get in my supermarket that are uh, from grass-fed milk. This book is a terrific holiday present. Thank you for giving us the fascinating history of butter. And thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. You're welcome.